It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. You know, Mark Twain said it best. The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Sometimes in life, we have to go through the darkest of times in order to find our true purpose and passion in life. My co-host is someone I've been watching for a while now, and I'm really honored that he is here with me today. David Simmons is the founder and executive director of the UBU Project, an arts education outreach company specializing in social emotional arts integration. Their mission is the prevention of youth suicide, addiction, and bullying through social emotional arts integration residencies. David's diverse career as an educator, performer, producer, recording artist, inspirational speaker, worship leader, and mental health advocate has taken him all over the world. You know, what I admire most about David is how real and vulnerable and honest he is in sharing his story. He is a thriving survivor of his own suicide attempts. He's a recovering alcoholic celebrating 29 years of sobriety. He dealt with childhood bullying in school, like so many of us, and he lives with the managed mental health diagnosis of depression, PTSD, and anxiety. And he has also dealt with the loss of a spouse due to cancer. His life experiences offer valuable insight and he brings such a unique and hope-filled perspective to the kids that he works with at the UBU Project, and it makes him such a very valuable member of the Worldwide Collective. So, David, I am very, very honored to have you here with me in studio today. Welcome to Get Real. Thank you, Robin. I am so excited to be here. Um, I think it's funny that you and I have been bumping into each other on social media for, what, a couple of years now? Oh, yeah. And my favorite part that you and I were just talking about was uh, a friend of mine was talking about a friend of hers saying, oh, we should get so-and-so to to help promote this benefit concept we're talking about. And they mentioned this other person's name. And I thought, oh, Robin, yeah, we've been Facebook <laughs> friends for a while. And I went to my other friend and she said, yeah, I have no idea who Robin Cote is. I went, well, anyway, I've, re- I've connected with her and we're going to do something. <laughs> so it's my honor to be here. Thanks for bringing me here. And, you know, as I was telling you before we started this show, I've been watching what you do with the UBU project. I've been watching your personal journey on social media and the fact that, you know, we don't see men and and I'm not going to, this isn't sexist. It's very true. Men don't Mm -hmm. talk openly about the things they go through. And I think the first time I caught wind of stuff you were writing on social media, you were talking about your late wife, Marilyn, Mm -hmm. and it struck a chord with me because you were making some changes in your life and you always honored her memory, but then all these wonderful things have been happening to you lately and now all of a sudden you're engaged to be married again <laughs> and life is so good. Oh, life is so good. Yeah, I am. I, I, what everyone wishes for that, that we never know how to find it until it lands in our laps. I am engaged to my best friend. Uh, Tamara and I have known each other 
uh, for nine years, uh, seven years uh, since uh, my late wife Marilyn passed, and and we've we've supported each other through you know deeply traumatic experiences. Uh, we've been colleagues. She's uh, she costumed me as Daddy Warbucks in a production of Annie, and uh, you know our artistry and our just everything has been you know, sort of ebbing and flowing all along. And uh, I, of course, waited until she moved back to where she grew up in Iowa to think, hey, I should marry this person. It's <laughs> so always now, like that, isn't it? Starting starting this, uh, starting in about a month, we will be uh, professional snowbirds rather than retired snowbirds. And she, we'll both be working full-time from Iowa and then uh, back here in the Phoenix Valley and greater Arizona too, uh, for the school year as much as possible for the UBU project stuff, but also looking to expand uh, into the Iowa schools. And then uh, most of my career was actually based in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis-St. Paul uh, up in Minnesota. So uh, looking at expanding up there too. So it's, uh, you know, everything happens as it should and the, the universe is unfolding in a timely fashion. And I got you at the right time just before you moved on me, a right? to the men on that. <laughs> so... You know, you have a very extensive bio, and I've gotten pieces of it just by looking at your social media. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I did a little bit more research, and I could not believe when I looked at your bio where you've been, what you've done, who you've performed with. I love musicians. I spent a good part of my career working with them, and I see how many friends we have in common in the industry, oh, both, cool. both the local film industry and the music industry. Nice. And when I expressed to them that you were coming on this show to have a conversation with me, they were like, oh my God, well, it's about time. <laughs> That's exactly what people said when Tamara and I got engaged. <laughs> We've known for seven years. Why did it take you guys so long? Yeah, that's funny. I love that. So take us back. I know you grew up in a family that's um, very well versed in the entertainment industry yes. and also in social issues. So kind of take us back a little bit and walk us through David's childhood. You bet. And where he ended up in his career, all these wonderful places you've been and what you've done. Yeah, it's been pretty cool. Thanks, Robin. I, uh, I, was, uh, I, was born, I was born, insert all possible jokes there, uh, uh, I'm the youngest of three kids. Uh, my brother, who's uh, in the film industry, is the middle child. And then our sister, who's the smart one, is a retired English prof uh, from the University of Washington in Seattle. So she was born in Chicago. Actually, I need to go back a little further. As family legend goes, our father was born on the kitchen table in a town of 70 people in western Illinois. Wow. And he did. He grew up as a farm boy. And very early on, like, pre-K, four or five years old, he showed this incredible gift for music that when they would take him to church, they, he, he, he would sit at the piano and play things he had just heard. And I didn't find out about this until well into my adult life because my dad would never brag on himself. And apparently, during the, this was during the Depression, his dad, my grandfather, saved up enough. They had an accordion. They couldn't afford a piano. And saved up enough for one piece of sheet music. And Grandpa Guy shellacked it onto a piece of masonite <laughs> so that the paper wouldn't rot away. <laughs> That's an interesting way to keep yeah, it alive. Yeah, exactly. So, and my mom, mom was the city mouse born in Chicago and they met in a small college uh, in Western Illinois. Sister was born in Chicago. My brother and I were both born in Detroit, you know, public school there, public school. Dad ended up at Ohio State at the university, at Ohio State's uh, music department. Um, and then uh, he ended up, uh, he ended his career uh, at the University of Montana in Missoula, Montana, uh, 
teaching and as an administrator up into the dean level. And so University of Montana is where my brother, sister, and I each got our undergraduate degrees. I took six years. That was the shortest of all of us. <laughs> wow. That's just, I like to say six years, one degree. And um, my brother got his music degree there. My sister's was in English and then uh, did the rest of her uh, postgraduate work uh, in, in, at the University of Washington. And so in addition to our dad being a musician and an educator, our mom was a teacher. She taught French in one of the first uh, foreign language immersion programs in the U.S., where all you spoke was the language you were learning. And uh, when we were all living in Montana, one of the, her biggest jobs was she ran the Artists in the Schools program for the Montana Arts Council. So, you know, a town of, you know, 1,100 people would get this world-class jazz musician in for a couple of months. Or uh, the big thing for her, too, was there was a poetry program that is still held up as as sort of the 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 the, the, the words are hard today <laughs> you know as as, as 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 what other people compare you know a, a successful writing program in any school and there's volumes of of kids poetry that have been published so i grew up around arts arts education arts administration and my parents were both activists uh in social justice but it was not until they retired that it was through marching and protest. It was just the way they lived. My brother put it beautifully when we were interviewed after they passed that mom and dad taught us by the way they lived. Wow. And, and it was just, it was gorgeous. And, um, and so, yeah, so I was, I was raised, uh, I remember, you know, back in Ohio, uh, late grade school, we had one of those big, uh, hi-fis where the, the stereo, the record player, the turntable was on one half and the other half was where you're supposed to store all your albums mm -hmm. all between the five of us. There was so much there. But I remember vividly there would be uh, the the Bernstein Mass, a Bach album cover, King Crimson's Court of the Crimson yeah. King, Yes, Fragile, uh, Nashville Skyline, Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced, James Taylor's first at two albums. And as just my, my whole childhood, I was... I was engulfed in every possible style of music. And I showed an affinity for, for being an educator very early on. Uh, fast forward to when I went to college. Oh, when we moved to Montana, I found out there were two high schools in the town we went to in Missoula. One was Sentinel High School. That was the new high school. The other was Hellgate. And I Ooh. said, oh, Dad, we have got to move into the Hellgate district. And I was a Hellgate night, man. What a great name for a school. Oh, yeah. Wow. So I went to Hellgate High School living up Rattlesnake Creek. <laughs> you don't get much more Montana than that. And it was, it was while we were living in Montana, I started working with a number of theater companies. There's one that's thriving internationally now called the Missoula Children's Theater. And their, their template is they go into a town or a school, if you know, if they, they've come into the Phoenix Valley quite a bit, so they'll go into a specific school, but they'll go into a town of a couple thousand and cast sometimes all 60 kids that are in that school or, you know, 60 local kids, whatever it might be. So they'll come in on Monday, cast these kids in a, in, and it's all uh, fairy tales and public domain, you know, folk tales and things, but costumes, uh, simple scenery and everything like that. And by Friday, they put on this full production, musical, everything. Kids are playing the leads. There's two adult actors that would be sort of the narrators in case things fall apart. And you know, what you meant to say, Alice, was that you were going to go over to the Cheshire Cat's house. Oh, yes, I remember that. Oh, that's cool. Safety net. But yeah, but the cool thing, that's where I learned that kids can do anything because no one's told them that's not possible. Try and get 
60 adults to do the same thing, first of all, and that won't happen. And then tell them, okay, by Friday, you're going to be off book and not just memorized, but you're going to perform, perform a show. Good luck with that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so that's where I picked up the model of uh, doing these one-week residencies uh, as a teaching artist. Um, and so I'll fast forward. I know, there's a, no, I know there's a lot in between. But when I created the UBU project, I knew that it was going to work best in this one-week model where I come into a school on a Monday. And it's not a performance-based thing. It's process-based completely. And I come in on a Monday and I talk to the kids a little bit about my history um, why I do what I do. Um, and what it is, is uh, it's what's referred to as an adapted Socratic seminar, which is just fancy talk for the kids and I talk for a week about hope, resilience, self-compassion, and empathy. And I never once give my definitions. We never once Google those words. It's all about what does it mean to you? Because these these kids aren't finding tools to fix themselves. They're finding treasures within themselves. Um that all of these things already exist and it's a matter of discovery. And, and so these kids come up with these amazing thoughts and ideas about what's this and what's that and how does that work. And then the framework for all of this is a songwriting seminar throughout the week. And they choose one of those treasure words and that will be the focus of the song that they're writing. And I never say this to the kids, but I joke with my partner teachers in schools, the songwriting, that's a parlor trick. That just keeps the kids interested. And they write some good stuff. And, right. and when they're able to create something, um, there's ownership of the language as well as the, the piece they create. And I'm really good at creating earworms. Uh, when I was a, a contemporary worship leader, people would say, well, you should either be doing contemporary church music or radio jingles because I cannot get your songs out of my head. <laughs> and so I encourage the kids that when we write the hook, I said, you know, we need to repeat this a few times because, you know, one of the greatest hooks in the world, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. Three and a half times. It's the intro, it's the chorus at least twice, and it's the outro for a two and a half minute song. And that's what the, the why the Beatles were so brilliant. I mean it. Right. And so these kids, these kids come up with these great ideas, and it's the perfect job for me. Uh, being able to share both life life experiences and and my professional training and experience, but the only thing that's tough for me is that I don't allow myself or any adult in the room to share any lyric ideas. We can guide the kids, but this needs to be completely student co-created so that they have a hundred percent ownership of it. And um, if you if you will indulge me. Vivid memory of so many of these, but this one really stuck with me. I was teaching in a fifth grade uh, here in the Phoenix West Valley. And so it's a classroom of 25, 10-year-olds. And we're talking about hope, resilience, self-compassion, empathy. What does it mean to you? And they had chosen hope as the topic of their song. And I said, okay, we need a really standout sort of once upon a time first sentence in the song. And I follow, uh, and this makes me sound a lot more educated than I am, although my parents paid for a lot of education. <laughs> I, uh, I, the songwriting structure I use to teach, I never use as a writer. Um, and it's, uh, it's based on Shakespeare's sonnet structure. So each verse has four lines. Each line has 10 beats. It has an alternating rhyme scheme, blah, blah, blah. So, so we've talked about the structure of the song, and we're looking for that first sentence to really make the listener want to hear it. And this one kid raises her hand, and she's an old soul. I could just see. And I said, okay, what do you got? And she said, 
I hope that I get over my depression. Mm. And I said, that's very powerful. I know how that feels. I live with depression too. Are you seeing someone professional to help you with that? Because I am. My trusted adult, I pay them at least once a month to hear my stuff. <laughs> and so we talked about that and I congratulated her and told her how proud I was that she was taking care of herself. And then I asked her, okay, so the sentence you came up with was, I hope that I get over my depression. Is it your depression? Does it define who you are? Or is it just something that you have to deal with over the course of a day or week or month? And she thought for a second and she said, no, it doesn't define me. It's, it's just something. I said, good. Because we got 11 syllables in that line and we need to get rid of one. So which one syllable do we get rid of to still keep the vibe and not have it define you or anyone else? And she thought, and we went, my. I said, great. And so the kids start coming up with other ideas for more lines in the song. And the song they came up with was, I hope that I get over depression. Again, this is 25, 10-year-olds wow. conspiring and co-creating. Mm. I hope that I get over depression because it makes me not love myself yet. That is definitely my conclusion. That's why I need some time to have a rest. Wow. I know. <laughs> it's just the amount, as I said to my brother one day, every day I go into the classroom, I teach that which I must learn. These kids continue to, to influence me with their own experiences. And then I said, okay, now we need a hook for the song. We need that thing, you know, when I talked about that and the She Loves You thing, Beatles thing. And I said, we need something that's really going to be memorable. So what's a word or a phrase we've talked about? It might already be in the song lyrics. It might be something that you're just thinking about. And this one kid raises his hand and said, shine. Mm. Hope shines. And I went, great. I love that. So the kids came up with shine. Hope shines light on depression. Shine. Hope shines giving you compassion. And I said, okay, we need a third line that's really going to you know, send us home. And this one kid, anybody who remembers Welcome Back, Cotter, he was like Horshack. Oh, oh, Mr. David, Mr. David. Oh, oh. And I thought his arm was going to fly off. And I said, what? And he said, you know, I could see the idea leaving his brain and coming out his mouth. Hope shines light on depression like a diamond. Oh, my God. I said, dude, 45 years of doing this, I have never come up with a line that good. <laughs> That's a mic drop right there. Wow. And so the kids have this as well as this ongoing conversation where their voice has been honored and it's usually about the second day that they realize that I really do want to hear what they have to say and that I'm not going to just be another random adult saying, do this, don't do that, see at the end of the week. And it's, and I got that approach to teaching. Most teachers have some sense of that in their, in their pedagogy. But our, our dad um, was a big fan of the book The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, which was a very, very popular book in the 50s. And it's still one of the the leading sellers worldwide. worldwide. And Khalil Gibran was a, a Lebanese poet. And I go out and read it. It's fun. But it, it, the book touches on all sorts of things, love, marriage, children, everything. And in one of them, it says, talk to us about teaching. And the phrase that our father, not so much drilled into us, but ramped up in us was the greatest teachers draw their students to the threshold of their own wisdom. I cannot give you my passion for music. I can use my passion for music to draw yours out of you. And that is 100% my approach as a teacher is these kids have something they've been wanting to share for the first 10 years of their life and haven't had a space to do it just because our society in general is not a place to do that. Earlier you mentioned about, um, and people can throw their arms up about 
gender normative behavior and blah, blah, blah. Men are different than women. And men generally in our society are not encouraged to share the deep mm -hmm. feelings. Yep. And I have a, a specific experience I want to go back to on that. But, you know, no, no judgment of parents or schools or anything like that. It's just our world doesn't encourage kids to really say, and if they're coming up with the, with the tough stuff, the, the message that I got was, oh, why are you so sad? I love it when you smile. Great. My world is, my 10-year-old world is falling apart in here and I don't know what to do. And the grownups I trust are saying, just keep smiling. That and, doesn't work. Yeah. And it just doesn't work. You know, no. it's like when somebody's, you know, when you're dealing with depression and someone says, cheer up, I'll get on that. When you break your leg, just walk it off. Doesn't work that doesn't way. Doesn't work that nope. way. Nope. Nope. So, um... I think, and then as I, you know, bounce back and forth, um, in terms of people being able to share of themselves, and I hid my deepest darkness for the vast majority of my life. I've, I've always been very effusive and emotional, and that's why it, became, it was such a surprise to my family when uh, my wife, now late wife, uh, contacted them to say that I had attempted suicide and I was in a certain hospital and, and this was happening and I was alive and prognosis was good, but it's going to be a long road back. This was surprising to everyone because I was always the happy, funny one. And so I masked it all so well. And then I remember after my attempt and seven and a half weeks on the locked ward, um, sort of like when you buy a white car and you're driving on the freeway and all you see are white cars. Mm -hmm. Yep. All that kept popping out to me, social media, news, whatever it was, were stories of people losing someone to suicide or someone dying by suicide or considering or this statistic or that. And there was a professional football player, a lineman, who died by suicide in the parking lot of the stadium. Mm -hmm. And at a press conference, his quarterback, you know, obviously incredibly emotional, but he, you know, question, answer, question, answer. And he said, look, this is what I've learned from this because you have to learn from everything. If somebody, uh, if you ask someone how they're doing, do you mean it? And when you answer that question, are you telling the truth? Right. And that was a huge, uh, a huge awakening for me. And with my friends, you know, and then I just began to, you know, just this verbal vomit would come flowing out. And, and it got to the point with my, my closest circle of friends, some of whom I'm sure we both know, um, they would say, how you doing? And I would say, Okay, the short, the, uh, the I need to go to therapy answer or the quick answer. And they'd say, right. well, you know, is this a go to see your therapist thing? And I said, no, nah, you know, I'm having a rough day, but I'm dealing with it. I got the tools. And, but I've always learned to be able to share where it needs to be shared. And there are times where I do that in front of an audience of, you know, 500 to 1,000 people at a conference or to my therapist. You know, it's, I started into this with the belief that I need that, Part of my calling, for lack of a better word, was to help normalize the conversation around mental health. Right. Let's get rid of the stigma. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you ask anybody, you know, how are your allergies this year? You ask them how their depression is. You doing okay? You know, how's your mental health? You, you feeling all right? We forget about that because there's so much shame in actually admitting that you're going through something. You don't feel you're in a safe place to do so with so many people. Right. Right. And that's a very important point. And, and to all of you, millions of people listening right now, um, it is so important to find that safe space. And once you find it, to engage it as much as possible. You know, unfortunately, we get that message when a celebrity chooses to take their own life. And then suddenly we're all talking about it. 
as opposed to someone just coming out and saying, I am an advocate for mental health and mental wellness because I also deal with, you know, mine are major depressive disorder recurrent, free-floating anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder and a bunch of other things that sort of bubble around in there. And uh, I just feel so blessed. Um, uh, I was recording my current CD, uh, current as in came out three years ago, uh, and I was driving across the valley to, uh, to my, uh, my producer's studio, Gardner Cole. Hi, Gardner. Hope I know listening. Gardner. <laughs> and his wife. Yes, fabulous people. Mm-hmm. And the kids yes. who I haven't seen, and I think they're both ready for college now. But I was driving across the, the valley to Gardner's place, and I was listening to the radio, and I heard the statistic that the leading cause of death for children in Arizona ages 10 to 14 was suicide. That's just ridiculous. Yeah, and I was galvanized. I said, this is why my life was saved. This is why I need to do something, and I didn't know what it was. And uh, my best friend, uh, Walt Verson, my brother from another mother, he and I had been talking about, you know, how do we make David in a box? He had seen me do some teaching and was just really taken by it. And, and you, know, I've, you know, I'm a teacher and an artist. I don't know about, <laughs> I don't know how to turn myself into a product. And, um, and so we'd been talking about it and, and I brought this to him and he said, this is it. I don't know what it looks like yet, but this is it. And so my brother, uh, I love when I say just happened because nothing just happens. It's designed. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so uh, my brother had a show, uh, a TV show on, I think it was the Stars Network called Counterpart. And he was, he was filming, I think, the first season. So he's, I went out to visit him. My friend Walt just happened to be in town on a professional thing. Another dear mutual friend, uh, Bobby, just happened to be in town doing a comedy gig. So we all met in my brother's trailer on the set, and I said, I, th- I think I know what I'm supposed to do. And I spelled out the rough outline of the UBU project, and they all went, oh, yeah, yeah, that is exactly what you need to be doing. And uh, got some incredible support, both uh, uh, you know, personal and professional and financial and all that. And uh, we did our first residency in September of 2018, School year 2018 and 2019, we did about eight weeks in various schools and, you know, mostly calling friends of mine saying, hey, you know, I'm doing this thing now. And they were like, great, bring it in. And then school year 2019, 2020, mm-hmm. foreshortened by the pandemic, we had 30 weeks booked. Wow. Full, fully booked, grant funded, the whole thing. I was able to say to my primary uh, sustaining donor, don't need your money for the rest of the year. It's all earned income now because the schools were finding grant money. You know, because no school has it in their budget. Oh, we need to bring in the random bald guy with the guitar to help <laughs> save our kids' lives. But yeah. there's, there's, you know, it's, it's all that third-party funding. So any of you who work for a large corporation that wants to help save kids' lives, I'm your guy. But uh, so it was, and we were, we, we did this huge benefit concert, and my brother came in and sang and, uh, I said, hey, you know, you want to bring in one of your Hollywood Broadway pals to sing? And he's so sweet. He's also one of my best friends. He said, I'd, I'd really rather sing with you. Aww. Oh, I know. <laughs> Isn't that great, though? Yeah. Hollywood yeah. hasn't gone to his head. Oh, God, not at all. See, that's great. One of my favorite things about him, and there are so many, is that when I talk to his colleagues, the first thing they'll say is, your brother is the greatest guy in the world to work with. Aww. The greatest. And when I go visit him on set, 
you know, of course, he'll introduce me to the fancy pants stars that he's with and stuff, but he'll know the name of all uh, the Teamsters and drivers and crew members. And, you know, when he got his Oscar, um, the closest he came to flexing his Oscar winner muscles was getting better food for the crew because they were on their feet 20 hours a day. Wow. You know, when the word went up, oh, so-and-so wants better food. And he kept saying, for the crew, I'm fine. I have a trailer. These guys are in boots on their feet on cement all day. Can we have something more than donuts and, you know, protein bars? And, and it, that's just it's just the way he is. You know, we were we were mid Midwestern working class. Um, you know, I would it it is a disservice to people who are truly blue collar to call us blue collar. But that Midwestern work ethic was always a part of who we were. You know, both of our parents were raised uh, during the Depression. You know, mom's dad had, I think, three jobs. Uh, dad's dad uh, had a farm, plus he was a rural mail carrier. And, you know, some days for dinner you had lard sandwiches. <laughs> so, yeah. And so my brother and, and I think I, my, our sister and I, too, have just maintained that, you know, do the work, you know, see the work, do the work, leave the misery aside. If it needs to be done, you do it. So... So, yeah, he and my friend Walt and our friend Bobby, too, uh, but mostly Walt and, and my brother really helped me fashion a vision and then a practicality. It fit perfectly in that, you know, show up on Monday, do the thing Friday. I tell my, my, my partner teachers, my hosts, I'm like the goofy uncle that gets them sugared up and jumping on the furniture. <laughs> then I leave and you got them the rest of the year. But it's they, they have this really powerful experience and they're able to take ownership and agency and, and realize they have a place in this. But it's not like we're putting the mantle of saving the world on these kids. It's, no, you have a voice and that voice starts with yourself. And that <laughs> earlier when Rob and I were talking, I said, most interviewers, they ask me one question and two hours later, I stop talking. I'm, I'm keenly aware of the sound of my own voice. So I have so much more to say, but I'm wondering if I am uh, encouraging no. more questions. No, or... I'm, I'm letting you roll with it because it, the biggest thing I'm catching out of the whole UBU project, and we talk about this quite often on this show, and mm -hmm. I talk about it on the blog consistently. The one thing that we're missing in our childhood, and you and I know this is we're older adults now, mm -hmm. but we can reflect back and realize the biggest thing that we're missing growing up is self-worth. We don't teach what self-worth is. And what I'm hearing you talk about and what I've seen the UBU project doing is you're actually showing kids what it means to have that self-worth without even using those two words. And that's what I see is being done because I myself can't do therapy because it never worked. I've always used writing. Mm -hmm. So when I see what they're doing, that you're allowing them to write and to basically purge and therapy themselves mm -hmm. going through this, that's what I really find fascinating about the UBU project because if something like this existed when you and I were kids, oh, I, mean I would have checked into that program a long time ago. You know, <laughs> exactly. it'd be like, dude, hey, teacher, get this in here. We yeah, need this. Exactly. Thank you. And that's one of the things I love is, and I'm very clear with, with all my partner schools and it's in the contracts and everything that I am a licensed, uh, you know, big old ball guy with a guitar. I am a licensed songwriter and the kids love to hear that when I went to school, I was trained to be an opera singer and a conductor. So they want to hear me sing opera Ooh. until I tell them, well, then I found out I couldn't sing Mozart on Friday and Led Zeppelin on Saturday. So Led Zeppelin won. That's okay. I can handle Led Zeppelin. I mean, so, um, but anyway, it's, uh, when, in terms of the counseling and behavioral health side of things, I always talk about 
find the trusted adult. It may be your school counselor. Nine times out of 10, the school counselor or district prevention specialist, Lauren Pilato is one of our, our, uh, uh, our partners with the Scottsdale Unified District. And I'd worked with her before at another district. And she or one of her colleagues is, was always in the classroom when we're doing this. Because there's times that even though I may or may not share my story of being a suicide attempt survivor and you know, thriving alcohol, recovering alcoholic and was once bullied and, uh, and that I was my own worst bully, sometimes I share that and sometimes the school opt out of that and I totally respect that. Um, but a few times a kid will self-identify needing to have that deeper conversation. I had a kid recently um, here in the state of Arizona who I was just doing a general check-in, you know, name, age, um, it was just before spring break. What are you guys doing on spring break? And, you know, what's your favorite, you know, ice cream? And uh, this kid said, well, this and this and that, I'm sort of feeling depressed. And I said, oh, I understand how that feels. Are you depressed or sad? Because they are two different things. And she said, no, I'm depressed. And, 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 and I said, okay, I didn't want to push the point with her. Um, but then... I was going down the road, just getting the other kids to, you know, give these answers to these questions. And I, this kid started crying. And so I high signed the counselor that was in the room, just kept things on going. And you're just a high sign of this kid needs a thing. And the counselor spent the next two, three hours with them. And it wasn't that she had just discovered she's dealing with this. She's been dealing with her, her mental health uh, issues for quite some time. And whatever, you know, what we were talking about didn't trigger her. But the safe space and the trust was built that she was able to be herself in that moment. Wow. And it was such a beautiful thing that, that the counselor was there. They went and talked. Um, and, you know, and this, like a lot of us with siblings, you know, she has a sibling who in her mind is the golden child and never makes any mistakes. And, you know, I know a few golden children in my life and they struggle as much as anyone you know mm -hmm. my my brother is an incredibly successful person in his career and one day i was talking to him and i said i just feel so frightened and alone and he said dude i have this amazing life and i feel frightened and alone sometimes it's it's called being a person it's the okay. human condition yeah exactly mm -hmm. and so as far as the you know one of the things i say um if i'm talking to a larger group but also just whenever i can but the counselor's counsel, the doctor's doctor, we write songs. And when it comes up that someone needs to talk a little more deeply, instantly I say, who are your trusted adults? Who can you talk to? Because unfortunately, it's not always their parents. No. Um, sometimes it is. Um, and so to be able to have, and I've got, in addition to my board of directors, which is an amazing group of people, I've also got... Uh, an ad hoc sort of uh, group of professional advisors. I've got three mental health professionals, two education professionals, and just a, an entertainment industry professional in there. So when the deeper questions of like the difference between, I said to one of them, one of my advisors, I said, what, how would you explain to a 10 year old the difference between sadness and depression? And because in my mind it was sadness isn't emotion, depression is a diagnosis. Right. And I thought even that's not gonna make sense to a kid. And her, the thing she came up with was, because uh, she does a lot of child and family psychology, she said, she, re she replied back to me, having created a little scene of talking to a kid and saying, explaining the same thing. Remember when your team lost the game a couple of weeks ago and you were really sad and then you went out for ice cream and 
you got over it and realized it was just a game and then you you know all went to play skee-ball at Chuck E. Cheese. He said, yeah. Now imagine you lost the game and you were really sad and you went out for ice cream and you got sadder and the next day you couldn't get out of bed, you were so sad and you were still sad a week later. That's depression and that's why I'm here, she, she said as a counselor. And I thought wow. that's beautiful. And my version of that when I talk to kids is... I use the sort of same scenario and I say, and that's why you have a trusted adult. That's why your counselor is here in the room. That's why your principal, your teacher. And I, at least once in the week, I'll have each kid mention, you know, I say, do you have a trusted adult? Raise your hand. Who's here comfortable self-identifying who their trusted adults are? And a lot of time it's the teacher, the, the counselor. Um, if they say it's their best friend, I said, no, that's your friend. Friends are here to love us. Um, a trusted adult has a lot more life experience and they're the ones that are going to actually help you. You know, you don't fix your friends. You love them. You do your best. Get right. them to a trusted adult. Need guidance. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, it's been really encouraging. And then the notes I get from these kids are everything from just these, um, these incredible stories of their own thriving survival from things that I didn't even know existed when I was 10 you know, between 10 and 14. And, you know, I, you know, I really hope we get to go to Disneyland for spring break. It's great. You're being a kid. I dig that. But one of the notes that I got from a kid that still inspires me, they all do, but this one stuck in my head because I remember the kid from the, from, from the residencies. He was a sixth grader here in the Phoenix Valley. And he said, the note was, dear Mr. David, you probably don't remember me but I had a brain tumor in kindergarten. It came back in fifth grade, and next week I have a growth hormone test, and I'm not afraid because he taught me about hope and resilience. Oh, wow. You know, and I, and I was talking about that, and the teacher in the back of the room nodded like, yeah, that's so great. And I said, yeah, and as a teacher, I, I'm an idiot to say that doesn't mean something to me. But what me matters even more is this kid took ownership of what those words mean and had their own sensibility of it rather than, you know, here's, here's what Merriam-Webster says about hope and resilience. Um, and that these kids take this ownership and realize, like getting back to the self-worth that you were talking about, realize that they deserve it. Mm -hmm. That's what is why, I, you know, I talk to them, what does UBU stand for? And they're all kind of coming up with United Basketball Underwater Bravery. <laughs> I say, okay, you're overthinking this. Overthinking. Don't yep. say it. Spell it. UBU. Oh. And... Part of how I came up with the name is a long story of a friend who saw a license plate somewhere. But also, when I was early in recovery and on the Olympic self-loathing squad, <laughs> my sponsor, because, you know, I'm chief of sinners, name it, you know, war in the Middle East, it's my fault. The rainforest is burning. I did that. I didn't. It's just the guilt that you're feeling from everything you're going through. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and to, as Brene Brown talks about, catastrophizing and globalizing. Mm -hmm. Yep. My sponsor, who was an ex-priest, said to me, and of, of course I told him this changed my life, and he said, yeah, no memory of ever saying that. <laughs> but what he said to me was, Simmons, is loving your neighbor as you love yourself good news for your neighbor? And I thought, wow, no. I would never treat another human being the way I treat myself, either emotionally, psychologically, or physically. And what's wrong with us that we're treating ourselves that bad to begin with? Exactly. Yeah. And that turned me around because I'm a man of faith. And it struck me, no, I would never treat another person like that. And then I realized, according to that, that scripture, 
God presupposes that we love ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't that God said, love your neighbors as you love your other neighbors. No. You know, depending on what anybody's faith tradition is and whatever path you're on, the idea that we were made to love and we're part of that was just this shocking thing to me. And I've actually spoken to churches about that and I get some raised eyebrows. You know, it sounds a little new agey to me. Well, it's been around for 2,000 years, so you can deal with it as you want to. And that, that turned me around as a person of faith. That turned me around as to how I wrote music when I was writing music for churches for 10 years. And when that came back to visit me when I created the UBU project, that, you know, some people have said, oh, so this is a faith-based organization. I say, no, 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 not at all. Well, it's faith-based in yourself. Right, yeah, as a yeah, person of faith. as a person. Yeah. Well, not, e- not even are, that. Yeah, but there are organizations that are specifically, right. you know, this Connected is a, with religion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I got no problem with that. But it's very important to me to truly reach out to every walk on this planet, every walk and roll, um, that people feel safe. Right. Um, one of the things I learned in recovery is this is a safe space. You might not feel comfortable, but you will always be safe. And so to be able to push that comfort just just that little bit. And with some kids, it's blah, 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 And they go from one to a million in their sharing. And, it, and that's wonderful. But when I see the kid go from one to 1.2, and I realized that those were giant steps where they leapt over the Grand Canyon to be able to express themselves. It's just, it is so inspiring what these kids come up with, what they're willing to share to when, and the alphas in the classroom always self-identify. You know, there's a kid, mm-hmm. who, it was me in school, the kids whose hand is always up. And I learned long ago as a teacher to say to those kids, thank you so much. You have so many great ideas. Write them down. Always write your ideas down. Leadership. I, yeah. And I want to make sure that everyone else has a chance to talk to. So don't lose your ideas just because I don't talk, call on you. And I do my best to, throughout the course of the week, to call on every kid at least once. I know for some kids, it is their greatest act of courage to speak out, even to say their name. And I am... Uh, I, I am fully understanding of that situation. And I never want to force a kid or shame a kid into a thing. It's just like one kid um, I was asking about, you know, what does hope for mean to you? Or uh, one of the treasure chest words I was asking about a, a personal experience or reflection. And he said, I don't know. And I said, I think you do. And he said, I, I can't do it. And I said, I believe you can. I have confidence in you. And he said, well, I don't have it in myself. And I instantly went back to something someone said to me in recovery. I will have confidence in you until you have it in yourself. I love that. Yeah. And then the recovery thing was, we'll love you till you love yourself. And by the end of the week, that kid was that one to 1.2. That kid finally shared something. And I, by God, made it part of the song, you know, so that the kid could point to. Uh, there's a great musical called Working that was written by a bunch of different composers. Uh, Stephen Schwartz and James Taylor were the most noteworthy. But the closing song was see that building. I was the one that did the design. I was the one that made the plan. See those bricks. Those bricks are mine. And it's all about, I had something to do with that. You know, my, see that window on the 14th floor? Right, two, three, there. That's mine, you know? Or see that studio window up on the 6th floor? That's where we're doing the thing. It's part of your legacy. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's also equally important. It's part of your right now mm-hmm. to be able to say, I did a thing, you know? So... 
And yeah, you, it's just magical. And there's something that you mentioned a while back when you talked to some of these kids mm-hmm. that really strikes a chord with me because back when I went through counseling or tried to with a, a center against sexual assault after being raped at 17, and mm-hmm. the first thing she did was reach across the table and tell me, I know how you feel. And that really pissed me off. That mm-hmm. hurt because... First of all, I asked her, I said, have you ever been raped? And she said, no, I haven't. And I said, then, first of all, you wouldn't even begin to understand how I feel. And second of all, you're not in my head. You're not in my heart. Mm -hmm. You don't have a clue how I feel because you haven't even asked. And when you said that you say to them that you can understand, that is something that's so powerful. I can understand what you're feeling it is so different. It changes the narrative. It doesn't put us on defense and it doesn't put us in a state of mind like you don't care about me. You're just saying that because it's part of your job. Right. So that really hit me. It struck me when you said that a while back. And I wanted to bring that point out because that is something so important. I mean, you're dealing with kids much younger than I was when I went through my bad experience but my parents silenced my voice as well. Mm-hmm. My father refused to call the authorities. My mother didn't even know how to comfort me because her own mother deserted her. So she was never really a, a good mom to me. Mm-hmm. And I struggled to find that place where I could share and use my voice. And even at a place that specialized in it, they sent someone in my direction that didn't have a clue how to even speak to somebody in that particular situation. So. The fact that, yes, you bring the life experience because you do understand, you can relate to what they're feeling, but the way that you use your verbiage to connect with the children, I believe is probably one of the pinnacle points of why the UBU project is just so important because it does allow kids to have that safe space and be able to purge so much of that stuff. Because if if you look at our world today, most people in their mid-40s to their 50s are now going back and dealing with their childhood trauma, trying to heal the inner child, trying to deal with whatever they went through, whether it was the divorce and molestations, um, you know, anything, suicides. I've had a lot of suicide in my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm the tough guy. I'm supposed to be able to handle anything. Yeah, I'm not, right. I that. Yeah, we're not supposed to fall apart. But, you know, where do we go when we have to deal with that? And growing up without really having parental support, I, like I said, I chose writing. Writing was my saving grace. Mm-hmm. I put everything down on paper. And in the end, you know, like you share a lot on your blog and I share on mine, the experiences we go through, they're meant if we're still here after we go through it, they're meant for a reason. What do we mm-hmm. do with that? And I think what you've created with the UBU project is just absolutely spectacular. And I don't understand why this isn't a part of curriculum in school everywhere. I, uh, I, I echo all of that. And thank you. Thank you for your kind of words. I appreciate it. It's, um, it's fun when, when I go out and talk to a school that gets it. And it's, you know, within five minutes, it's, okay, we need to schedule this and this and this class and this class. And there are some, there is some pushback on it, uh, mostly from parents in the community because, oh, social emotional learning, you, you know, you're going to teach my kids not to have a backbone. You're going to, you know, the, the amount of misunderstanding of being able to, the belief that if you talk about it, they're going to do it. No. Which is, which is, uh, if you look at the, uh, the statistics and talk to the experts, giving kids, and again, I don't talk about, suicide addiction or bullying 
um, as a primary thing in the talk. If any of those three comes up, it's bullying because that's an immediate issue that the kids are talking about mm -hmm. or dealing with. And bullying often leads to self-harm, which leads to substance issues, which leads to greater self-harm, which can lead to suicidal behaviors. And, and so most of what we talk about is, you know, in the schools where I do share my story, they will hear that 30-second, my name is Mr. David, here's all the cool stuff I've been, you know, I've been to all 50 states, 19 countries, four, uh, four continents, I've done everything from grand opera to heavy metal, I was on tour with so-and-so and so-and-so, and, -so, and so I've done all this teaching and stuff, and also part of why I do what I do is because I'm a thriving survivor of my own suicide attempt, I'm a recovering alcoholic with 29 years sober, and I was bullied in school, and I was my own worst bully. And I'm having this great life right now. I'm engaged to an amazing woman that it, it, it was just, <laughs> there's a whole other show I could talk about, Tamara. Um, but I said, I'm having this amazing life. And the reason I do what I do is to let you know that you don't have to experience all that trauma and tragedy to have a great life. Life's going to happen. Good stuff's going to happen. Bad stuff's going to happen. The only thing we really have a choice over is how we respond to what's going on in our world. How we let it affect us. Yeah, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And I, and I always talk about that's where your trusted adults come in. When things get to be overwhelming and you don't know how to, the thoughts just don't make sense to you, whether it's trying to get through uh, you know, calculus or whatever it is, or emotional things, whatever it is, that's what your trusted adults are for in your life. And I'm really grateful you brought up the language that I use because I'm not always aware of it because I, I steep myself in it in my own life. Right. But I learned early on, and I was going to say my friend Tamara. She is my friend. She's all the love of my life and my fiance. But one of the things I've learned from her, and like with my parents, it's never, it's never a let's sit down and talk about this thing. This is the way she lives her life and how she has taught me by the way she is on the planet, is she and everybody has a story. Everybody mm -hmm. has a thing. Everybody has a something or a series of somethings. And I learned from her in just our interactions as friends and colleagues, I have no idea what she's been through, but I know what I've been through. And part of the joys of being where we both are now is we've both been through our things and that gives us a common place to sit right you know, my things are back here my things are back here but here we are and we refuse we have refused to allow this back here it's a really great visual going on all you listeners <laughs> <laughs> there's there's mime i've got i've got pie charts i've got the pyrotechnics going on but there's all this stuff behind us that led us to where we are now my favorite band in the world got a tattoo on my arm is yes all right and one of their songs you know song 20 minute epics um the lyric the the hook for this one piece is we must have waited all our lives for this moment and whatever that moment is you know i'll be 63 soon happy and proud of every year everything that's happened has led me to coming up on my 63rd birthday Everything that's happened has led me to sitting here chatting with you, you know, as if we were trading recipes, talking about how our <laughs> lives were saved and how we keep going on. Right. And, and the glory is that all these personal and professional and, and societal experiences that we've had and realizing, going back to something you said, that, that we are enough, that we do matter, that we do have worth, 
And then for me as an educator, because I think all grown-ups are educators, just some of us have the title. That's you know, true. We educate by the way we choose to live and the words we choose to say. And so when I finally realized that, and then as an educator, my first thought was, my first thoughts anytime are, where could we put a show on or a concert on in this building? How can I create an education outreach program for whatever organization I'm working now? It's just the way my brain works. And when I realized, okay, I'm making these great strides with amazing mental health professionals and, and a loving uh, just tribe of support, how do I carry this elsewhere? And, you know, God bless the people who supported me and would see what I'm doing and say, yeah, you're talking, this is too, this isn't the David project. It's the UVU project. And it's great that you're being yourself, but how is that encouraging the kids to be themselves? And I was like, oh, hard truth, but good. And then to be able to have the kids, you know, write me notes like I'm not scared because I, I have hope and resilience. Um, uh, I have so many notes like that from kids. But I'm glad you share them on social media because some of us would have never known those things if we hadn't seen those for ourselves. Yeah. And if you, um, and you know, uh, shameless self-promotion, uh, the UBU project is out on, on Facebook. Um, everything I post on my own personal Facebook page. Um, and <laughs> there's a picture of me with my fiance, Tamara and my adult son, Nico on my, on my Facebook page. But everything I post is something from the work I do because it's, it's part of who I am. You know, sometimes it's a song I wrote and I'm really proud of it and excited for it. But when these kids send me a note, part of it is to let people know what we're doing with the project because so many support us. But also for those people who have no idea that kids are going through this. You know, they think mm -hmm. birth to 18, everything's hunky-dory. Mm -hmm. And then it gets weird in college. No. 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 One of my favorite things my mom taught me, one was a parent's job is to teach your kids not to need you. And the other was the only thing harder than raising or teaching a middle school kid is being one. Mm. Remember that when you're teaching them. <laughs> yeah. And it's so different in our world today. I mean, when we grew up, you got bullied, you took it out to the schoolyard, one and done, it was over. Right. Or you figured out a way to avoid the bully. Mm -hmm. and, and now it's not that simple. I mean, especially with telephones and s social media. I mm -hmm. mean, it's just, I can't even imagine what it's like to grow up as a kid in today's world. No, and it's, you know, with technology and, and the digital world, like anything, there's, our, there's the yin and the yang to everything. And, you know, kids can be horribly bullied on social media, but that's also where they can find... Uh, if they make wise choices, that's also where they can find hope and connection. True. Um, and the thing about bullying is bullying was always, this is a bad, not a, a good analogy, but it's what keeps coming back to me. Bullying was always sort of schoolyard cute. Ah, uh, you know, he's pushing the girls, so he must like her. No, he's assaulting another human being. That's not cute. You know, the kid said this to you. Ah, boys will be boys. Oh, they're just being kids. No. They're being emotionally and psychologically and physically attacked. And I had a talk with one of my groups, one of my classes that got to the point where the teacher and the, the district counselor asked if we could do another week focused just on, on bullying, anti-bullying. And um, one of the things we talked about is, you know, what are your options? What can you do? And you know, find an adult, get out of the situation. There's always the kid that says, hit him back. I said... I understand why you're saying that. Um, hitting another person is never okay. It's just never okay. 
get out of the situation. Do everything you can to get out of the situation. You are the braver, stronger person to get out of it. And we also talk about empathy towards the bully, not to excuse their behavior, but when a 10-year-old kid says these horrific things and then starts punching a kid, that's not where the cycle is beginning. Mm -mm. That kid has been bullied, and their bully was bullied, mm -hmm. and it cycles, cycles back. And sometimes and, it's family trauma. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't have that statistic in front of me, but anecdotally, talking to kids and talking to other adults, their violent responses to, to what's going on in their world can be traced back through the family lineage, mm -hmm. you know, and... Uh, and and then one kid who was an obvious leader said, well, I understand the no hitting at, at all, but what if a kid is being, and then she described this horrific, you know, felonious crime. And I said, I am, I am not, uh, I'm not capable of answering that question. I'm not trained or certified to talk to you about that situation. You know, I would say, take that, that question to, uh, to one of your trusted adults here at the school who might be able to guide you to someone. Um, but once again, getting back to the things that are on these kids' minds that they, they just need to talk about. And sometimes they need a reply and sometimes they need to just name the beast and say it's standing right there and okay, all right, I've named my beast. I'll deal with it later. Let's keep writing our song with a good hook in it that's gonna make everybody happy. So it's a, it's, it's a very powerful and joyous experience and it sometimes surprises me how joyous it is when I realize the kind of things that are being shared, but they're being shared out of almost, you almost hear this huge sigh of relief and see the shoulders dropping from the tension when the kids are actually able to talk about. One kid said, I said, what are you hopeful for? Well, my dad's got a big presentation coming up for his business, and I hope, it, I hope he gets it because I don't want him to take it out on me. Oh. I thought, oh my God. And, you know, and thank God there was a counselor wow. there to hear that, to, you know, to clock that, to make sure they kept an eye on this kid. And, and it's so much pressure, you know, kids today are as conversant in how to shield and uh, to shelter in place in an active shooter drill as they are about the Pythagorean theorem, you know? I can't even imagine being, I mean, we had fire drills. Yeah. You know, and that was the worst of it. But now, again, they're being taught what happens if there's an active shooter here. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. And even during the Cold War, the height of the Cold War, I mean, I'm a Cold War baby, but, you know, in the height of the 50s and early 60s, the whole thought of, oh, if the bombs drop, get under your desk, duck and cover. That's all you got to do. Everything will be okay if you get under a sheet when the bomb drops. Mm, yeah. um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's. We could get lost on that whole conversation, too, about the, the rise in that kind of uh, violent behavior. But what informs me in how I work with these kids is to help them discover, like I say, those treasures of hope, resilience, self-compassion, and empathy. And that's, I mean, I'm part of them. What we do is part of one tile in this gorgeous mosaic of things that are available. There are so many great organizations out there. Stand up, speak up, save a life. Uh, Girls Hope, Boys Hope. There are so many other organizations, additional organizations out there. Glisten, the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, doing amazing work to let kids know they matter and just who they are is an important offering to the world. And the more, you know, I, I see what happens in our world. I'm not an idiot. But I also realize, finally, 
I can't go over to Ukraine right now and stop what's happening. As a man of faith, I can say prayers and ask my higher power, what do you need me to do in this situation? But I'm also part of helping raising a generation of hopeful, resilient, self-compassionate, empathetic young humans who hopefully, when they become the rulers in our world, whether they're parents or politicians, they have that foundation of, I matter, but I don't matter more than the person next to me. Right. And they understand what self-worth is. Mm -hmm. Because that's, again, that's a huge challenge, especially in the world, because we don't teach our children that. And we struggle as adults to find Mm -hmm. that. And it takes a lot of work to tear off all the conditioning we've been through in our lifetime just to get down to the bare minimum of who we are and then to learn more about ourselves. I mean, it took me till I was 52 to figure that out. Yeah, amen for that. Yeah, I was, I turned 50 uh, on the psych ward after my breakdown and attempt. And that's where the huge turnarounds began. But uh, it's been within the last 10 years that it really started to to uh, to take root within me and in in my inner self, and I love that that our conversation that the phrase that you keep bringing back is self worth. I am enough. You know, it, it doesn't stop you from being a better you or a stronger or a, a more informed musician or uh, you know math teacher or janitor, whatever it is you're doing your worth matters. Yes. And that's, you're right. That is not something that is not something within the fabric of Western culture at all. Um, it is actually, I find, I have found over my life personally. And then as I involve myself professionally in social emotional learning through the arts, that it's, it's just, it's almost discouraged. It makes you weak. Vulnerability is weakness. Or selfish. Yeah, exactly. Self-worth is selfish. It is not selfish. You have to take care of yourself. Yeah, and I keep going back to something Brene Brown talks about. Vulnerability is the greatest courage there is. Mm -hmm. And also from uh, my sort of my my epiphany, my light bulb going off when my sponsor asked about loving my neighbor as I love myself, realizing that the God I believe in believes I love myself. You know, and from a spiritual point of view, that was huge for me. And when I'm speaking with faith communities, I will always bring that up because that's within my faith tradition that was never highlighted. You know, the love was always highlighted, but that that worth, that enough, that something that I am sufficient. I am I I I, I am both amazing and sufficient. And on my worst days, I have something to offer, even if it's taking a nap all day long, because I have just been out adulting way too much, you know? Yeah, I got to take care of myself. That's the most important thing. And we don't emphasize that enough in our world. Exactly. Exactly. And I am so, you know, like you and I were talking earlier about trauma survivors are drawn to each other, whether they know it or not. And Mm -hmm. then finally the, oh, that's why we get each other so well. I have a number of friends, everyone I know has has had some form of trauma in their life and the ones who have been able to identify and deal with and move beyond for lack of a better phrase are the ones i connect with best because when you say to them or they say to me how you doing and the answer is sort of a tough day but i'm 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 dealing we both just had a two-hour conversation because we have an understanding what's going on Mm -hmm. and the honor that i feel 
that I'm able to be in a classroom or, you know, I work uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be going up to Yavapai County uh, Juvenile Detention. I work with kids in juvie. I work with kids in foster shelters. I work with kids, international baccalaureate. I work with kids of special needs, uh, high, uh, deep into the spectrum. And the thing I've learned my whole life is kids are kids and you meet them where they are and you remove the barriers. And sometimes you go from one to a million and sometimes you go from one to 1 1.2. But helping them understand that you matter. When I talk about what UBU means, it says, I tell the kids, it means be who you are and not who the world wants to turn you into. Because mm. the world is going to tell you, you're too old, you're too young, you're too big, you're too fat, you're too gay, you're too straight, you're too brown, green, yellow, red, purple, orange, I don't care what it is. And that's a lie. Advertise will tell you that you need to be frightened if you don't have the right shoes, the right haircut, the right this, the right that. No, I got nothing against a nice pair of shoes and, you know, a, a nice outfit that, that matches and expressing yourself. But you are not a better person because of the products you utilize. It's just, it's just another tool in life. You know, my, uh, I was teaching up at Juvie and they asked what kind of car I drive. And I said, well, I have this, you know, car. how much did it cost? Are you rich? <laughs> Well, according to 90% of the world, yes, I am, because 90% of the world lives in dirt. Um, but no, in America, I'm just sort of in the middle there. Uh, well, what about that bling? I usually have an earring in. What about that, that diamond in your ear? And you said, you mean the piece of cut glass that came with 10 other pieces of cut glass for $9 at Target? <laughs> you know, it's still just as pretty, and I like having the sparklies on, but... It's, you know, and if you want to wear diamonds, get after it. You know, jewels, you know, when I, you know, and I'm, <laughs> I always tell my kids to say squirrel when I start talking about either my son or Tamara, my fiance, because it means we've gone off track from the actual curriculum. I just have to laugh because I absolutely can't stand diamonds, but I have one little tiny diamond earring in my right ear. And it's because it was my late husband's. I had to remove it from him. The day before oh he died in the hospital, and I've always kept it. It's a good luck charm. See? So, you know. You never know. You and, never know. And, I don't even know if it's something? real or not. I don't know. <laughs> and it doesn't matter. I've worn it 21 years in my ear, and they're like, why do you only have one diamond earring? Well, because my husband was the guy with the mullet rocking out with the 80s hair and the one diamond earring. Right. Back exactly. When it, back when guys couldn't wear them in both ears because it was not cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? I've got, I got a whole story about when I got my ear pierced, but again, that's another show. <laughs> but when I proposed to Tamara, and she had, um, we knew this was going to happen. As my sister said, I... I texted my sister and said, I, I think I'm going to ask Tamara to marry me. And my sister responded back, my spidey sisterly senses were telling me a, pro a proposal oh, was coming. Oh, brother. And, but when I, and I did the whole kneel down, and I had practiced, and I had lines from one of our favorite movies and Aww. everything. And I gave her the ring. And, and so she and I knew this was going to happen. We just, you know, timing and when was it, you know, it going to be just this performative, you know, the actor is proposing, or is this really an expression of love? And so she had shown me the kinds of rings she liked. You know, I love this design. And she wasn't saying, buy me this ring. And, you know, my favorite stone is this particular stone. And so I went and searched. And because I'm both a teacher and an artist, I'm not rolling in green. Um, right. But I found this ring and I thought, this looks like just what she wants. And so when I proposed to her and we both cried and she... <laughs> She said later, were you crying because of the proposal or because your knees hurt? <laughs> Mostly the proposal, yeah, but my knees did hurt a little bit. 
But I gave it to her, and she said, it's perfect. And I said, babe, it's just a stunt double. I'll get you the re No, this is perfect. And what mattered to her was the beauty and that I had taken the time to find something that mattered. And, you know, whether it was the this or the that or the other thing. And... <laughs> And 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 that I had the 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 presence of mind to call it a stunt double. <laughs> I think that's funny. Yeah, and and it just goes back to you know the the what makes your worth. You do. How do you express it, man? That's up to you. You know, with my guitars, you know, the kids will say, you know, what kind of guitar do you have? How much do it cost? I said, I've got an Ibanez, which is a knockoff of mm -hmm. a Fender and a Gibson, and. I quit buying it. Fender Gibson, I love you. If you need me to help you out, I will. But, you know. <laughs> they carry I, a higher price tag. Yeah. You know, I yeah. quit buying logos a long time ago. <laughs> and especially, I'm very good at what I do, but I'm not like, I got to have this instrument to be able to do that thing. I can do what I need to do. With, I like that confidence. But, yeah, with that with that off the rack, I'll, I'll, I'll take my instruments off the rack. I have one really high-end guitar because for my birthday one year, can't remember which birthday it was. My brother said, I want, I want to get you a guitar for your birthday. And I said, that's really sweet. I love it because he loves, he and my dad both love, well, all my family love, love to hear me sing. And he and I have that connection anyway. And uh, I said, oh, thank you so much. I've got, you know, I've got this. And I don't, you know, my needs are met. My wants are few. And he just looked at me and said, I want to buy you a guitar for you. Oh, I understand now. And uh, I started, you know, I started looking at the low end of the rack and he went, I want to buy you a really special guitar. I mean, he's an Oscar winner. He can afford it, right? Yeah. And it, and it wasn't <laughs> even that. It was just, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just, he wanted to show his love that way. Right. I want you to get what you right. want. And I right. thought, okay, so I looked through a bunch of them, a bunch of them, a bunch of them. And to me, this is weird. Other musicians, other guitarists especially might understand this. But to me, a guitar that I like playing is as much ergonomically fitted to my body as it is the sound that comes out of it. And so I looked at this and that and this and that, and I found this one and I put it on and it's like the guitar went, I've been waiting for you, David. <laughs> I felt like a glove. Try this. And I, went, and I strummed it and I was like, oh my God, the neck is perfect and the fingerboard is perfect. And it was, you know, when it cost this much and it had this name and it happened to be uh, John Petrucci, who's the guitarist for Dream Theater, is sort of a guitar hero of mine, and it was his signature model on this. Nice. Yeah, and and so so that's sort of my. I'll still be careful with it, but I'm you know if, if something happens, I'm not going to freak out. It has the best case. <laughs> there you go. Best it protection. Has T, it has the TSA approved airline case. Don't mess uh, with my guitar. Yeah, exactly. And I and <laughs> and you know so every once in a while something shiny is really good and and. And, you know, I don't want everyone, anyone to feel ashamed because they have the, you know, 30,000 square foot, whatever home, blah, blah, blah. Great. My house is great. In 90% of the world, three generations would be living there and be running a business out of it as well. I'm, I'm cognizant of how blessed and grateful I am. So it's, but it, again, it keeps coming back to self-worth. That, right. that we are enough. We matter and we don't have to do anything to matter, but we get to express it in so many ways. And that's that's the piece that I get to do for a job. I keep waiting for the job police to come up and go, oh, this isn't a job. You don't get to make people feel good about themselves and create music. I'm sorry, that's not a job. Yes, it is. It is. It's also your true passion. Which exactly. I, I love seeing 
you in person after all this time because then I can get the vibe of the energy that you put off. And the second you walked in, I mean, you weren't even in the studio part. You were still in the front office over here in the front corridor. And I'm like, I can feel your presence. And it's it's such an amazing energy. Thank you. That I think no matter what room you walk into, you still turn heads because of that pull to the good side of that energy. You just emulate this. I mean, you you have this energy. I can't describe it other than, wow. You know, just wow. And for you to finally figure out what to do with your purpose after going through all of that stuff in life. I mean, we all know that life is not easy. Right. And we're going to go through things. But again, you have to find that place where you can express yourself. And I've known so many musicians in my lifetime and, and music is the universal language there that's no joke without question you know no matter just the song lyric no and no matter where you go in the world all these musicians that tour across the world in different countries if you're from america and you're singing english and you're in japan they know your lyrics even though they don't speak english yeah 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 you know music touches the deepest parts of our soul it heals us and i think what you have going with the ubu project is just fantastic because it allows them to pour the words out of their soul and to find their way to healing. And again, that self-worth is just so important that we don't instill that enough in our children. Amen to that. I, <sighs> I want to remember these lyrics from this last week. Then this, and one of my favorite parts of the week is when I, it's, I, it's called Stump Mr. David. <laughs> what style of music is this song? Every song, my, my dear friend and manager at the time, um, Walt Verson, um, who's worked with some of the greats, including me. Um, but he would tell me throughout the recording of this last album, the song is king. It knows exactly what it wants. Mm -hmm. Get out of its way. My gardener would often say, you're trampling the flower, man. You're just <laughs> trampling the flower. Um, but so I'll tell the kids, your favorite kind of music might be rap. This song might be telling you it's a punk tune or, or an R&B ballad or whatever. So let's go, let's go through a bunch of styles. And of course, the kids always want to hear me rap until I rap. And then we've had enough of that. Thank you, Mr. David. <laughs> you know, I have great respect for, the, for hip hop and rap. Um, but so we went through a bunch of stuff and these kids said, hey, let's try 50s. I went, okay, now 50s isn't one style. It's like saying rock is one style. You know, there's so many subgenres. You know, with the 50s, you've got doo-wop, you've got this, you've got that, you've got Elvis. They went, ooh, Elvis, because they wanted me to do my Elvis impersonation, which isn't that good. <laughs> and so I can't see, uh, I can't remember the, the verse, but the chorus was, be the one, the true, be the one, the true you, be the one who always do, be the one who loves more, be the one who holds the door, be the one. And my favorite lyric I think any kid has ever written was, be the one who always do. That's and I so said, cute. I have no idea what that means, but it's like the coolest rock and roll blues lyric I've ever heard. Be the one who always do, baby. Uh, Drive home like safe. Wolfman Jack. Exactly. <laughs> there we are aging ourselves. That's okay. With age comes wisdom. Exactly. And that's the wisdom we can share to the younger generation to help in any way we can. And exactly. I, 
Again, you know, David, I think we're coming to the end of this because I right. probably kept you quite a long time. No worries. But is there anything else you'd like us all to know about you, what you do, and um, kind of tell us where we can find out about the UBU project? Because I think the school systems need to really take a look at this and get their butts in gear because we <laughs> need something like this that's positive for our children, for them to grow up to be strong, productive adults. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, the best way to find us... Um, either on the website or in social media is look for UBU, the letters UBU project, either .org or hashtag or all that other stuff that you kids are doing these days. But online it's UBUproject.org and all one word, blah, blah, blah. And that has links to all the other stuff. And there's, there's just some amazing information out there. My brother and I did a video together. Uh, ABC 15 did a really lovely spot about us that's out there. And um, we've talked a lot about what we do with the project. And, you know, if I, when I was a kid and talked a lot, because I don't talk a lot now, but my mom, no? My, no, <laughs> but my mom one day said to me, David, if you had one word left in your word box, what would it be? And apparently I thought and said, help. <laughs> I like that. That's a pretty wise eight-year-old kid. But I think... You know, in interviews, when, when I get a question like that, I'm thinking, what's, you know, what's, 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 what wisdom do I want to drop? What, what's the thing? And I keep coming back to what you've gleaned from our conversation is that anyone who is hearing these words right now, you matter. Doesn't matter what you've done, what you want to do, what you haven't done, you matter, you have worth. And that's the foundation of what's going to happen in your life for the rest of your life. And as I say to the kids, the cool thing about UBU is it's not static. Who you are now is not who you were this morning. And it's not if you make a mistake, it's when and what do you learn from it. But you matter. Who you are as you are on the planet right now matters. And I just want everyone to hang on to that. No better words spoken. Thank you very much. You know... We have to leave the world better than we found it. Mm -hmm. And that's what our purpose is to do. And I am so grateful that you came here today to talk with me. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad it worked out. I am too. And now you're going to be off to uh, back east to take care of other business yeah, and, yeah. And, and enjoy your life. And, and I'm really grateful that you actually stuck around and that um, you found that purpose because we appreciate people who have that purpose and you are making a difference. Amen. And you will continue to make a difference. So thank you. Thank you, my friend. For doing that. Well, guys, as always, take care. And we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.